Our scripture reading is from Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. <clears throat> One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And his disciples walked along. They began to pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of God is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time he went to the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Well, good evening. It is good to be with you. Uh, I have to be honest with you, my life right now is a bit hectic. Um, my wife started working full-time. She's working nights at Wesley Hospital, so our schedules are a little bit crazy. Uh, I find myself sometimes forgetting what day it is with two young kids at home, shuffle them to preschool, to kids day out at whatever church they're at, and uh, I thought it was appropriate that, sure enough, um, Stan has me preaching on Sabbath. We live in a world that is on overdrive. We live in a world that is kind of a 24-7 world, a world that doesn't stop working. And of course, it didn't always used to be this way. You know, they used to have these laws called blue laws. And if you're familiar with them, they were, there was essentially a rhythm where on Sundays, shopping places would shut down. Um, there would be certain, certain things and almost a cultural uh, reason for shutting things down. Families could eat together, be together, worship together. And it was sort of a cultural deal. But those don't exist anymore. And many of us don't stop. In fact, in my 31 years of life, I just turned 31 last week, um, I think there was only one moment I can remember that I can consider maybe a societal Sabbath, and it was on September 11th. Many of you remember the day uh, when, those, when those planes hit the towers there was a moment where everybody stopped. People stopped flying. Uh, people went home. They called their loved ones. They had a moment in, in, a, in our entire nation was quiet and stopped. Unfortunately here, it requires a tragedy for people to rest. And the good news is that Jesus does not require tragedy for us to rest. But in fact, Jesus calls everyone to rest. He invites us into this rest. And he does so because God himself rested. If you remember, when God created the world, he, he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. 
And isn't it interesting that on the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve's first day in the garden was a day of rest. I would encourage you that the Sabbath rest is God's gift to you. He created it for you. As Jesus said in our text, the Sabbath is for us. And because God rests and God set it to be holy from the very beginning, he calls us to imitate that rhythm of rest as well. The other day I was um, with my, my kids and uh, my son Pierce asked me to make a train with him. We have a little train set in our basement. He loves to make these really long trains. It's a lot of fun. And I told Pierce, uh, my wife was out, was working, and I wanted to clean the house. That so when my wife came home, she just felt awesome. The house was clean, and I would be husband of the year. So I'm cleaning the kitchen, and Pierce says, Daddy, Daddy, I want to make, make a train track. And I said, all right, Pierce, when I finish the kitchen, we'll make the train track. And he says, okay, Daddy. He leaves, and I'm cleaning the kitchen. Sure enough, five minutes later, he runs up to me, Daddy, 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 he's pulling on my leg. I want to make the train track. And I said, Pierce, I'm about to finish the kitchen, as soon as I'm done, we'll make the train track. Well, about 20 minutes later, I finish the kitchen, and as I'm walking out, I notice there are toys everywhere in the living room. I'm like, oh, I'll just clean up the living room, and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll do the trains. And sure enough, five minutes into cleaning the living room, Daddy, 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 can we play with the trains? Here's the deal. It dawned on me that the work never really ends. And we don't rest because the work is finished. We rest because the work is never finished. There's always more to be done. There's always another project. There's always more money to be made. There's always something else. At the heart of our text this evening, we're going to see this truth on display. But before we see the realities of what's happening, there's some really interesting things happening in this text. We need to begin with the foundation of what the Sabbath is and understand that we need to see the Sabbath as a gift given to us and not a reward. It is a gift given to us and not a reward. It's for you, for your restoration, for your renewal. So with that foundation, let's go to our text in Mark. And in this passage, Jesus makes some claims that really defy all of our categories. I mean, to understand the magnitude, we're going to break it down. I've got three main elements from the text that I want to look at. The first is when Jesus is angry, right? This is mentioned in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 5. It mentions that Jesus is angry. And there are very few moments in Scripture where we see this human emotion rise up in Jesus where he is angry. But when they happen, they're important. And we need to understand what's beneath Jesus' anger. The second is we're going to look at the very end of the passage. It, I just, it seems like it's just thrown in there. But if you notice, there are two enemies of Jesus, the Herodians and the Pharisees. What we're going to find out and what we're going to uncover is that these are two unusual people groups to form an alliance against Jesus. And it's important to understanding the text. And last, we're going to look at the amazing claim that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and what that means. So first, let's look at the anger of Jesus. It says, he looked around them in anger, deeply distressed for their stubborn hearts. Now, the word for anger here is an interesting word. It doesn't just mean he's irritated or he's a little bit miffed, right? Jesus, the, the, in the Greek lexicon, the word here for being angry is anger with an, of an epic magnitude, right? Of an epic scale. 
Jesus is furious. Why is he so angry? What is he so upset about? Well, we see that it's stubborn hearts, but that that doesn't really seem like enough to be furious about. It's a little hard to imagine why Jesus is so angry. But let's look at this. You see, the trigger for Jesus, the reason why he's so angry, the reason why he gets so bent out of shape here is because their attitude and their hearts towards the Sabbath. Remember, the Sabbath is for who? God created the Sabbath for us, for a purpose, and yet the Pharisees are making it incredibly difficult for this to happen. In the first passage, what happens? They're upset because Jesus is picking grain during the Sabbath. In the second, Jesus is doing medical treatment. He's healing on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders at the time had put so many regulations on the Sabbath, so many rules and things surrounding it that it made it impossible for Jesus to even do anything that wasn't deemed illegal. What is the Sabbath for? The idea of rest is to restore. Sabbath was for restoration. It was for renewal. And isn't it interesting that Jesus is about to restore a man's shriveled hand? Right? If, if the Sabbath is for restoration and Jesus is about to restore a man's shriveled hand, then what's the point? If there are so many rules that make it impossible to restore. So this is bad. Uh, Jesus is mad. And I think he, we could say that he is mad enough on an epic scale, but why? Why? I don't think it was just this instance that Jesus is mad. We need to look deeper. You see, you see I think underneath this, it's not just about the Sabbath. Right, the Sabbath is a specific instance in which it was mentioned in this text, but I think there's something underneath the Sabbath. You see, look in verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, here's the secret. Jesus is not just talking about the Sabbath. He's talking about the law in general. The law was made for us, not us for the law. It's a gift, not a burden. It's a gift. Not, it's not meant to be a chain or something that holds us back, but it is a gift given to us so that we can thrive. And Jesus is saying there are two different approaches to the law of God. And what makes him furious is the attitude of the heart when the law is not seen as a gift, but instead is seen as a burden or a hindrance for people to experience God's goodness. It's not about Sabbath observances. It's about the attitude of the heart. The second thing is, we've got to look at who are these enemies, right? Who, who are the enemies of Jesus here? We have in verse 6, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians on how they might kill Jesus. Okay, in every commentary I read on this passage, everyone basically said the same thing. Like the fact that these two people hated each other uh, or hate each other so much and yet formed an alliance is really kind of a crazy thing, okay? Um, The Roman Empire was essentially imposing Greco-Roman Hellenistic pagan ideas, okay? So hedonistic, immoral, licentiousness, right? They They were doing things and living lifestyles of excess. And this spread throughout the entire empire, including Judea and Israel, And many in Judea felt like they were being overwhelmed by this licentious immorality, right? By this hedonistic lifestyle, this lifestyle of excess. And so they put up all these walls, all these barriers, all these rules 
for people to follow. It was a reaction, a conservative reaction to this creeping immorality. And the Pharisees had a lot to do with this. The Herodians, on the other hand, okay, they supported the secular power, which is Herod. So the Herodians were all about this licentious immorality, right? Hedonistic, life of excess. So on one hand, you've got the pious, the religious, right? The religious elite. And on the other hand, you have the people who were living a licentiousness, a sort of immorality. Um, And these two opposite ends of the spectrum have joined together in an alliance to kill Jesus. People were sworn enemies, these two crews, and yet they joined together. Um, Dr. Morna Hooker, who's a Cambridge scholar, wrote this. An alliance between the Herodians and the Pharisees is extraordinary. Mark shows us that Jesus was opposed both by the religious authorities and by the secular powers who ordinarily hated each other to death. So why would these two form this alliance? You see, when Jesus met a moral person, a religious person, and then when he met an immoral person, he tells them both the same thing. He tells them both that they are lost, right? You have the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. Jesus meets this woman at a well, and and she admits to having multiple affairs or having multiple husbands. And Jesus tells her that she is lost and that she needs eternal life. But one chapter earlier, we see Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And if you know anything about Nicodemus, he was a religious man. He was a Bible scholar. He he was a a very religious uh, ruler and Bible teacher. And what does he say to Nicodemus? You also are lost. You are lost. Be born again. So on one hand, you have those who say, there is no right or wrong. I can live however I want to live. And on the other hand, you have these really high morals, all these loads of regulations on top of regulations, on top of more rules. And yet, Jesus says to both sides, you are lost. Because all your attitudes of the law are controlled by the conviction that the law is not a gift, but a burden. You see, I believe the law was given to us to help us thrive. You know, I understand this a little bit as a father of young kids. Uh, my, my youngest, Henry, is two. He's at the age now where he loves to just climb on everything. Um, and have you ever seen those videos, uh, YouTube videos of dad saves? You know, where like a kid falls off a couch and the dad has laser-like reflex. He's like, God, he catches the kid. Or they spill milk and the dad catches the cup before the milk spills. If I had one of those videos online, it would be dad fails. Okay, I don't have very many dad saves on, on my resume, but... Henry is just climbing over everything. Um, he's climbing on our, our little uh, end table next to the couch. And, you know, I'm kind of the parenting philosophy, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. So I'm like, just, you know, do your thing. And he's climbing. And I, I, there was a moment, though, I'm like, oh, no, this isn't good. And he, I could see him falling. And he hits the couch, right, falls to the ground, hits his head on the ground, and just tear city, right? He's really, really sad. So I go over there and I comfort him because a good father would. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Henry. Like, you need to be careful. Don't do that again. Sure enough, five minutes later, I look over. Henry's climbing up to the end table. And this time, I'm like, Henry, be careful. And he kind of gives me this look of defiance like, oh, yeah. And he starts dancing on the table. I'm like, oh, no. And sure enough, as he steps over, the end table shifts a little bit and he falls. 
and he hits his head. Now, a good father would probably just, you know, remove the end table or something. But I, I instead, I say, okay, Henry, and he can understand what I'm saying to him. I say, Henry, no more climbing on the end table. This is a, now a rule. I'm laying down the law. We're not going to do this anymore because you've hit your head twice and you were both, and you're unhappy both times. Five minutes later, Henry's climbing on the other end table. So he's definitely not breaking my law, but I tell him as he's doing it, I said, Henry, don't climb on the end table. Um, it's, gonna get, it's not going to end well for you. And sure enough, he fell. This time he didn't hit his head on the floor, just on the couch, so it was all good. But it made me nervous. Now, the reason we have rules for our kids is why. We want to keep them safe. We want to protect them. It's for their good. And I can remember being in high school back when I had a curfew. And in my mind, the, the curfew felt so restrictive. It felt like it was something that was keeping me from having a good time. And yet, deep down, I know that my heart of my parents was not to, not to make my life miserable, right? It was because they wanted to keep me safe. The law is not meant to be a crushing burden or a weight. The law exists to teach us the habits of our heart. It teaches us how to love. It is a gift given so that we can thrive. But on the other end of the spectrum, right, we have the religious. They believe that if they keep the law good enough, that they can put God in our debt. Right? If I do enough good things, if I, if I do enough good things and don't do enough bad things, that somehow God is going to owe me something. Maybe he'll answer more of my prayers. Right? They use the law as a way of getting blessing from God and then in turn using it as a battering ram for judging others. It is a sort of a public faith, wanting others to see how righteous we are. Friends, if the law does not produce freedom and love, then we have misunderstood its purpose. We've missed it. I remember when I fell in love with my wife, I was only a year out of college. We kind of had this whirlwind romance. We dated for three months. We were engaged for three months. And then we got married at the grocery store at Dillon's down the road. Um, or we got engaged at the grocery store at Dillon's down the road. Not married there. That would be really weird. <laughs> got engaged in, in, the, in the grocery store. And then I got married in her parents' living room. Um, I remember it was perfect. It was everything. I, I, I'm not, I don't want a big wedding. She didn't want a big wedding. It was perfect. And I remember for those first few months, I was so in love. I would do anything she wanted me to do. I was just head over heels for her. And she had, she had some lists of things that she wanted to change. Um, she loves lists. And it was just great, because at that time, I didn't really care. I was like, yeah, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll do anything to get better. And I remember one of the pet peeves she had is whenever I would leave a wet towel on the floor, which, fair. I mean, I, as a bachelor, I just didn't think anything of it. I thought, floor, good spot, right? I'd throw my towel down. And she would tell me, Matt, would you just hang up your towel? And she, it wasn't long before I realized, man, if I hang my towel, it dries. It doesn't smell bad. Like, this was for my good, right? Um, she actually cares about me. And so I... You know, the more and more I understood this, one of the things I understood too is that I wasn't doing these things out of some sort of religious obligation. I was doing it because I loved her. I would do anything for her. Anything she asked me to do, I would do it. Me wanting to be better 
was rooted in my love for my wife. And here's what legalism does, and this is very important, and you need to pay attention carefully to understand it. Legalism says, God will love us if we change. The gospel says that God will change us because in Christ, he has already infinitely loved us. Legalism says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I want to obey. When Jesus says you're lost to the religious people with high morals and to the people who are living sinful lifestyles, Jesus is confronting our attitudes of the heart, whether we're on one end of the spectrum or the other. And when the Herodians and the Pharisees say, this guy has to go, it's because, again, Jesus is confronting our attitudes of the heart. So lastly, here's the solution. It's the great and incredible claim of Jesus. It's the good news. Verse 28, so the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is not saying that the Sabbath is no longer a thing, right? Because remember verse 27, what did he say? The Sabbath is for you. He's not saying don't observe the Sabbath. He is not not observing the Sabbath, but he is disobeying the regulations that they put around the Sabbath. And he gives us a clue in verse 25. He answered, have you ever read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. See, this happened when David was on, his, on the run. He was a fugitive. This is before he became king. And the tabernacle was a place where you would come to worship God. And there, there was an altar. There was sacrifices. You had ceremonies. And there's also a table with consecrated bread. And so when David went up and ate this bread, there, there's no indication that this was on the Sabbath day. This isn't really referring to the Sabbath. So what is he talking about? You see, David, or Jesus is referring to David when he's talking about these ceremonies, right? We have the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, et cetera, et cetera, right? These are ethical rules. These are, these are, these are so relevant to us today. But there were other laws called ceremonial rules. And these were about how one worships God. And the tabernacle was where sinful human beings could go and be in the presence of the most holy God. But there was a bunch of ceremonies that you would have to go through, right? You had to um, wash, you couldn't touch this or that, you, you couldn't eat this or that, and you had to bring a certain kind of sacrifice. And it was sort of this enormous object lesson uh, showing people that you can't just go to a holy God. There has to be a bridge. There has to be a sacrifice. But here's the cool part. You see, Jesus is saying that even David knew that these ceremonial laws were temporary. Even David knew that these laws were temporary. It, was in, it wasn't an abiding thing. It wasn't like the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying those things were temporary. The ceremonial laws were temporary. And even David knew. All these laws that you put around the Sabbath, all these walls that you build up, Laws upon laws upon laws are temporary. They're getting in the way of what the Sabbath is for, which is restoration 
and renewal. And then he says it. He says, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. The God who created the Sabbath, who chose to rest when he did not need to. God didn't need to take a nap, right? He chose to rest. You know the word Sabbath means to cease. And he said, it is finished. It is good. Nothing more needs to be done. When Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, here's what he's saying. I'm going to go to the cross. And on that cross, I am going to say, it is finished. I'm going to say, it is done. I'm going to say, cease from your work because it is finished. Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross, if you haven't been reading it, I've I've mentioned it a few times. It's one that we're kind of reading as a companion to our Mark series. But Keller talks about there's two kinds of rest that we need. Um, And to illustrate this point, he uses an illustration from the great movie Chariots of Fire, if you've seen that movie. Uh, Chariots of Fire was based on the true story of two Olympians in the Paris competition of 1924. One of them was Eric Little, who was a Christian, and he refused to run on the Sabbath. And as a result, uh, he lost his chance to win a gold medal in a race that he was favored to win. Now, on one level, taking a day off was sort of what this movie was about, but the movie added another level when it contrasted Harold Abrams and Little. You see, Abram and Littles were both trying hard to win this medal, but Abrams was going to do it and was doing it out of a need to prove himself. At one point, speaking of the sprint event in which he was competing, Abram said this, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Little, on the other hand, simply wanted to please God, who already accepted him. And that's why he said to his sister, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. You see, Harold Abrams was weary even when he rested. And Eric Little was rested even when he was exerting himself. Why? Because there's work underneath our work that we need rest from. It's the work of self-justification. It's the work that often leads us to take refuge in religion and not in Jesus himself. You know, doctors will tell you that you don't just need naps, you don't just need naps, you need deep sleep. You need your body to enter into a REM cycle, and I don't know all the details, but like you need to really enter into deep sleep for your health. And you can have all the rest and the vacations and the naps in the world, but if we don't find our rest in Jesus, and we don't find our rest in what Jesus has done on the cross, we will never truly enter that special rest mentioned in Hebrews 4. When Jesus Christ says, I am Lord of the Sabbath, he is saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the true source of rest, and it is finished. I want to kind of wrap this up with a great quote. This is a quote by uh, N.T. Wright. Is our screen done? Our screen might be broken. Um, There it is. Um, He says this, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked into our midst. Christianity either means that or it means nothing. 
It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world, or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play-acting. And most of us, unable to cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow world in between. Let me ask you this in closing. Do you believe Jesus when he said it was finished? Do you believe him when he claims to be Lord of the Sabbath? On the cross, when he said, it is finished, I believe he is saying, I have finished the work that you are being crushed under. And that is both, in, in one sense, there's a physical rest that we need, but it is a deeper rest. And Jesus says, I've completed the work. It's done. It's finished. I've lived the life that you should have lived. I've died the death that you should have died. And now you have freedom because it is finished. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And let me ask you this this evening. I know for my own, my own life, my own walk, I actually had a conversation with my wife early this week. And I was struggling putting this sermon together because I just knew in my own heart um, that our life has been so hectic and so crazy and it feels like we're on this treadmill that just doesn't end. Shuffling kids from one place to another with our work schedules all in different places and being in seminary and doing youth ministry and a retreat. Man, I just felt tired. But even on a deeper level, I told my wife, I said, I feel like my soul is tired. And you know, she was, she was saying, you know, Matt, you've really been doing ministry like since college. You've been doing ministry for like 12 years. It makes sense that you'd be tired. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. And the more I thought of it, you know, I think that sometimes, no matter what your profession is, I know for me personally as a minister, like sometimes when you give and you give and you give and you're you're pouring out into the lives of others, sometimes that can be a really lonely and tiring place. And it's not just the late nights on retreats where I'm chasing kids down in the woods and who knows what else is going on. Like, that's tiring. But it's the tiredness that I can sense in my soul. It's knowing that I need a rest that is beneath the rest. And I can't find that by self-justification. I can't find that by having other people think well of me or whatever it is that I'm chasing after. The only place I can find that is the wellspring that is abiding in Jesus trusting his spirit for renewal and receiving his healing. And so I would ask you, where are you at on that, on that question? Is your soul tired? And on the other side of that equation, I would ask you, are you physically tired? Because I think that matters too. Maybe you're in a season of life with young kids, or you're in a season of life where things are crazy at work, or you're in a season, who knows what's going on? Are you physically exhausted? Is your body tired? I know that I need this good news more than ever in my life, that Jesus is the true Sabbath rest. Do you need that good news? Do you need to know the truth? That we can find our rest in the one who says it is finished. You know, for those of you who are physically tired, I just want to remind you, nobody takes an accidental Sabbath. And the Sabbath rest is an important rhythm of our life. And maybe that's what you need. Maybe that's what your family needs. 
to be intentional about putting the rhythm of Sabbath back into your life, making a day where we put away the cell phones, we put away uh, the TV, and we have a meal together, and we celebrate as a family. Maybe that's what your family needs. Or perhaps you need to hear the good news that the work has been finished for you on the cross. So wherever you're at, be reminded that the work is done. It is finished. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray renewal and restoration in this room. We come to you bearing our burdens. We come to you bearing our anxieties, the things in life that have been weighing on us. Lord, we offer um, ourselves to you, knowing that we are far from perfect, that we don't measure up, that we don't keep the law perfectly. And we're reminded again and again of the gospel that says the law is not meant to bind us, to keep us enslaved, to bring us uh, more burdens, but instead it's meant for us to thrive. It's meant for us to have freedom and life. So may we trust in the good news. May we trust in your goodness, that you are for us. We invite you to do your work. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.